Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns or an organisation driving change in your community, Dunn Street develops strategies to overcome those challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organising them to achieve common goals from the ground up. To find out how Dunstreet can partner with you or your organisation, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Welcome to episode 13 of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And speaking of abroad, today's episode uh, is with Scottish journalist uh, and commentator Kevin McKenna. Kevin is over here in. Uh, so Kevin's over here in Scotland. Kevin is over here in Australia at the moment, actually just visiting uh, some family members. But he took some time out of his vacation to come on to the podcast to talk about uh, Scottish politics, uh, journalism in Scotland, and the media in general, uh, the Scottish independence movement, and uh, Scottish Labour. Uh, Brexit, you name it, Scottish culture, the economy, the whole thing. Uh, and then at the end, we actually spoke about uh, uh, love that both he and I share, and that is of the greatest football team in the world, the Celtic Football Club. And this podcast actually was so goddamn big that I'm actually going to cut it into two parts. So the first part of this episode that you're listening to right now will be focused on um, politics and uh, independence and the, and the referendum and Brexit and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the second part, which I'll put up, uh, next week, um, we'll be focusing on Scottish culture, uh, sectarianism uh, in Scotland, and then um, the Celtic. We're going to talk about Celtic Football Club, Scottish football in general. Um, so the first half is essentially for all of you listeners out there that listen to the podcast for the political reasons, and the second half is essentially a podcast for my immediate family. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, episode and next week's episode uh, with Kevin McKenna. And don't forget that if you do listen to the podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and give us a rating. It helps us get us up the rankings because we are still new and noteworthy at the moment, which is brilliant. Um, And I'm on a mission to make sure that we get ahead of the, the rankings for uh, Paul Murray live on Sky News that, uh, blowhard Tory that just talks absolute garbage. Um, So give us a hand with that. And if you listen to us on Spotify or any other podcast, make sure you subscribe and tell your friends on all of your social media platforms. And if speaking of which, if you want to follow us, uh, please uh, do so at Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's go to part one of this uh, special Scottish edition of Socially Democratic with Kevin McKenna. Uh, we're taping this one on a Friday lunchtime in uh, downtown Melbourne and uh, fittingly the weather has uh, turned it on for our guest today to make him feel very much at home. It's a classic Glasgow summer's day uh, here in Melbourne and it's wonderful to welcome on the podcast today. Kevin Kenner, how are you going? Hello, how are you doing Stephen? Very well. Uh, you're, uh, we've tried to do this podcast um, previously. Um, we did. But you were unwell the last time you visited our, visited our fair shores. Yeah, yeah, four years, almost four years ago to the day um, I came out to Australia to, to see my daughter who'd, who'd uh, recently moved here and, and had, uh, had, had a bit of a heart attack. 
on the plane coming over, although I didn't know it, um, just felt a little bit peaky. <laughs> and um, my daughter didn't fancy the look of me when I stepped off the plane. So it was up to St Vincent's Hospital. Fine. Which I thought we'd just get a couple of tablets and I was a little bit anxious, but they, they, they told me that I'd had a heart attack. And I was there for four or five days. Luckily, they didn't have to open me up, but that took care of half my, half my holiday in Melbourne. I've never known somebody to be so nervous about coming out to uh, you know, this wonderful country of ours. <laughs> but they looked after me well. We have an excellent healthcare system. Oh, I couldn't couldn't speak highly enough. Well funded by the Labor government here in Victoria. And now the um, yeah, and now uh, and now the reason why I'm over here again is because, unfortunately, my daughter um, has uh, was diagnosed with cancer at the end of last year, um, and uh, she's you know things are progressing quite well for her uh, without going into too many details. Um, but similarly, she's had a um, fantastic health care experience at the hands of the wonderful Australian healthcare system. Excellent. So I was saying to her that the two of us, we could go to a theme party the next time there's a major theme party we could go as a kind of, we could just go as Glasgow, <laughs> her with her cancer and me with my heart problems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually when I was a young bloke and I went to Scotland uh, for the first time as an adult as opposed to under the care of my parents, um, I spent the first two weeks in Glasgow catching up with family and I think by the the tenth day I'd had my fair share of Sweeties, Iron Brew, yep. Um, fish suppers, and I, I, I put on about 30 pounds, and I could feel my, my heart starting to, you know, struggle to deal with these congealed arteries. Um, and turnip tea cakes, oh, I really devoured anything with the word turnip in front of it. I was consuming all of it. I kept that company in business for a while, though. Well, that's become a, Tunnox has become a, a political um, issue, but we can talk about that later. All right. Oddly enough, because at the moment, everything, Everything in Scotland's become politicised. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we've got you on the show today to talk a bit about that. But before we dive into this, the politics of Scotland for our viewers, um, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, you know, where and how does the, the Kevin McKenna life story begin? And how would it be? What song would you choose if there was a film to be made about you to kick, oh, off, you have asked me this to kick off that film? I know. <laughs> I only thought about that this morning. I don't know why I thought about that. But. Um, so I've been a journalist in uh, Scotland and the UK for, God, how long have I been a journalist? For thir- 35 years. Um, started off in local newspapers in 1986, 87. No, actually earlier, about 84. Um, and I was, uh, I worked with a, a paper called the Scottish Catholic Observer, which is independent of the Catholic Church, but um, could be a bit of a thorn in, in the official church's flesh. It was a good grounding in journalism. Went on to the Celtic View. You can see where this is going. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, one could argue was like the sporting wing of the Catholic yeah, Church. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, uh, I became sports editor at... Uh, the Scotsman in Scotland on Sunday a few years later um, and worked my way through most of the papers in Scotland. Um, uh, Sunday Herald, 
had a stint at Her Majesty's Daily Mail. I was I was a token lefty. Mm-hmm. And how was that experience? Uh, the Daily Mail is the most professional newspaper organization I've ever worked for. Scarily good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, know exactly what their their clientele is. You know, they could probably predict the behavior of their customers minute by minute, day by day. And that's a key to their success. They know all about their prejudices. They know what the, the buttons are to press. And there's, there's no other newspaper that knows its audience better than they do. And it's too, it's too quick to dismiss them as a kind of right-wing reactionary rag. That It's obviously a, a very right-wing I'd probably say conservative with a small C. Mm-hmm. Um, but they saw themselves as kind of warriors for the great, um, the the silent majority, the sort of Brits who are happy to stand in queues and and grumble but not make too much of a fuss out of things. And so the Daily Mail sees itself as, as, as representing them and saying, you don't have to make a fuss, we'll make a fuss for you. Um, and then, um, for the, uh, so in, in most of those roles, I was like doing backroom stuff, like executive, sports editor, commissioning. And then I started writing full time myself about ten years ago for the Observer. And what uh, what brought upon that transition from backroom to actually? Uh, part part of it was part. Part of it was just need, part of it was accident. Um, I'd left the Daily Mail. Uh, I'd been 25 years in in journalism and the hours were getting longer and uh, there was an opportunity to take redundancy. And then by chance, an an old friend of mine who was the comment and opinion editor of The Observer in London had asked me to to write a column in, in an emergency. Somebody, somebody had either let them down or, or there was a gap and he needed something written uh, quite quickly. So I got the tools out again, not having written seriously for many years. And and I said to him, I'll be, I'm happy to do this, but don't feel obliged mm. to publish it just because of our friendship, because if it's crap, um, you know, We'll call it quits. You know, we won't, we won't, we won't fall out. But happily, I'm still here. <laughs> so he must have liked uh, what he saw. And then, um, fortunately for me, I've I've, I've had uh, interest from other newspapers. So I still write for the Observer, and uh, I write for the um, the Herald in Glasgow, which used to be the Glasgow Herald, which is Scotland's main um, broadsheet newspaper. And and also recently, well, the last three or four years for the National, which is um, Scotland's newest newspaper, and which sprang up as a direct consequence of the the movement for an independent Scotland. Uh, there were so many people who had seemingly been mobilised by that campaign in 2014. And and they, many of them had a desire to, or, or felt that that pro-independence views weren't being adequately represented in the mainstream media, and so the national started up. So that was 
that was more that was probably about four and a half years ago and it's it's begun to put on quite a few sales started off shakily because there weren't that many people producing it and it met with quite a lot of industry disdain um, but it's become it's, it's become part of the the Scottish newspaper firmament. That's, uh, I mean, my question, it's interesting you've mentioned that because my next question actually was about in the 35 years you've been in the industry and seen the changes to media and the changes m- most recently with the onset of, with, the, with social media and the internet and, and the way that we consume our media now and it's so much more fragmented for a new print is it a print paper? Yes. Yep. Yeah. For it, obviously they have online as well. To to come into yeah, it was is it, risky. It was very very risky um, because print sales have been going down quite spectacularly in in uh, sectors of the industry over the last decade or so. Much of it is a consequence of um, people being able to get their news and any content tailored to their interests um, online and, and from various online platforms. A lot of it was a consequence of 24-hour uh, rolling news before then. Mm. And a lot of it also is a consequence of uh, the BBC's um, influence in, in the UK, which which is uh, which is it's almost a monopoly. You know, the, the, the state, we, the taxpayer, hand over hundreds of millions of pounds to the BBC and uh, they in turn uh, now don't just broadcast but they hire uh, lots of journalists at salaries bigger than newspapers are paying them and they put out lots of uh, written content um, and in those areas uh, where there has been you know, a, a good local weekly press um, the, the, the local newspapers are struggling because partly because uh, the BBC's Ubered it all up can do regional news um, online offerings which um, which will compete and compete well with the online platforms of these weekly newspapers and some of the national ones so crazily we, we, we permit this situation where mm. taxpayers fund something approaching a monopoly in the media and then watch it erode the influence and sometimes um, destroy the existence of uh, lots of weekly papers which have been part of uh, the communications and media industry in Scotland for 100, 150 years. In Australia, the view of those on the left, if if their political colouring is left of centre, they view our national broadcaster, the ABC, um, in a positive light mm. and are um, constantly, um, whenever there's a Conservative government in place, are constantly defending the right for the for our independent media um, and our, our state-sponsored media to get more and more funding to produce good content. So you find that most centre-lefties are there defending the ABC. Um, how It's interesting you've given that view of the BBC as a sort of a monolith hoovering up uh, both content and yep. and quality uh, and staff do 
does the average citizen in Scotland look towards the BBC? If you're left of centre or if you're right of centre, how do they view the, the BBC as a as a as a as a voice within the media well, community? Well, that, that that's a particularly pertinent question, Stephen, right now, uh, because the the relationship or any bonds that ever existed between the BBC and its viewing public in Scotland um, have never been more strained or frayed than they are now. The level of mistrust in the BBC by uh, people in Scotland has, uh, well, in my lifetime, has never been greater. Uh, much of that is a consequence of the BBC's conduct during the independence referendum in 2014, where on occasions it was quite blatantly um, pro-union and not so much the, the, the actual indigenous Scottish journalists because I know quite a lot of the Scottish journalists on the BBC and there's no obvious bias by it, um, that I've been able to see in, in many of them one way or the other in mm. terms of either Scottish independence or, or staying within the, the UK. But in the last several weeks of the of that campaign, which were quite crucial, the, the BBC took the decision to fly up at great expense some of their London heavyweights, who <coughs> became quite obvious and quite clear early on that um, uh, they, they, there was a, a complete absence of professionalism by these so-called heavyweights because they hadn't even, it was quite clear they hadn't even done basic homework or acquainted themselves with um, the um, just different sides of the the independence union unionist uh, debate. Um, they were they seemed completely unaware of the nuances of the debate that had been simmering away for decades before. Mm. And, and this became quite obvious in their, their extremely clumsy, unprofessional uh, coverage. And it was very obviously skewed towards the union. And it, um, it led to deep mistrust by not, not just many of those who had voted for an independent Scotland, but even others beyond it who, who had admired the BBC for... for for being an objective presence in um, in a country which is, you know, has had its divisions over all sorts of country, all, all sorts of issues, you could always rely on the BBC to a certain extent um, to be objective and to be some a voice that you could trust. And and since then, it hasn't really got much better because last week, for instance, um, there was a there was a breakthrough poll um, conducted by, ironically, a, a conservative grandee, uh, Lord Ashcroft, who runs a polling company. He was a very close friend of the former uh, conservative prime minister, David Cameron. And his, his polls, his, his polling has been um, very sophisticated, uh, pretty accurate and are regarded across the political spectrum as a, an accurate weather being of prevailing political currents. And it said that 52% um, of Scots were ready to vote for independence, 
But actually, when you drilled down <clears throat> even further into the figures, um, there were other trends which were contingent on Brexit, which suggested that the number could be even higher in favour of independence. Now, this was, this was reported in media outlets all over Europe because it was seen as a, a breakthrough and, and that uh, an independent Scotland would be what was coming close. And, and a lot of it, let's face it, was because of the, the spectre of a, a no-deal Brexit hanging over people. But the BBC in Scotland um, barely mentioned it. I think it was, it was talked about for a few minutes in an interview in the radio the day after, not a mention in any of the, the television news bulletins for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, I'm in Australia, and, and the, the Melbourne Age has is, is picked it up. Uh, one of the other newspapers in Australia had picked it up. Uh, I heard a snippet of it on uh, uh, broadcast on Australian media. It was picked up all over Europe, but the British Broadcasting Corporation didn't deem it um, significant enough to, to mention. And, and it was a big, professionally, it was a big miss for them because a few days later, John McDonnell, who is the Shadow Chancellor, Labour Shadow Chancellor, um, for the first time signalled a, a massive U-turn in the Labour Party's, the UK Labour Party's attitude to independence when he said on, on two occasions while being interviewed at the Edinburgh International Festival that the Labour Party wouldn't stand in the way of um, the Scottish Parliament calling for a, a second referendum on independence. Now, this was as a direct consequence of the Lord Ashcroft uh, polling. So for the BBC not to have, um, or to have treated it so um, disdainfully was, uh, was, was professionally, it was quite a disgrace. And unfortunately for them, it, it seemed to add um, weight to those arguments uh, or those that saw that, that, that felt the BBC had ditched any pretense of objectivity um, around the entire independence debate in Scotland. Let's dive into independence now because that's a good segue into it. But before we do, I want to get uh, a sense of your uh, journey and your thoughts on independence over, yep. over the course of that time. Because uh, I, in speaking to um, some of your colleagues uh, back home, they, um, in, in my in my research, they had mentioned that um, that at one point in your life you were uh, extremely pro-union to the point that they said that you used to support England just to wind them all up uh, in the football. Um, <laughs> and um, but during the independence referendum of two thousand and fourteen, over that period, you found yourself changing your 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 viewpoint on that. Um, before you talk about that, though, just give context about sort of because um, I think it's important for people listening to this show to understand the the, the fabric of um, the voting populations in Scotland. Um, you know, all of my family are they're part of the Irish diaspora. Uh, they're work they're working class or middle class people. They're tradespeople. Um, they've historically voted Labor all of their life, mm. and most Labor Australian Labor supporters would know that. Historically, Scotland is a Labour stronghold. It mm. has been for a very, mm. very long time. Um, very left-wing, working class, west of Scotland, the Clyde, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then 
something happened during that independence referendum that maybe you and your your own political um, socialisation is a, is a very similar. Yeah, it probably trend. reflected um, that of of quite a lot of people, especially in the west of Scotland. I wouldn't say that I was uh, was a, a strong pro unionist. <laughs> Um, so you're going to be having words when you get back to Scotland for some people. I, think. I was, I, I, and I did, and I did support England when it came to international football tournaments. I don't know why. Why do I support England? Because when you're when you're a child, growing up in Scotland, you 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 bought you the only football that you consumed in terms of media were Shoot magazine. Mm-hmm. And no, um, well. and the um, the English football highlights. Okay, there was a Scottish package as well, but the glamour was England. So you so you grow up being familiar with them, um, with great English footballers and the the great English football grounds and um, and and of course you you know you sport Scotland, mm. but but given that Scotland were usually kind of heading for the exit door at any major tournaments quite early on. You, you you had to you had to shift your vote somewhere else. There's nothing worse than watching a football match and and not having a horse in it, so to speak. Um, I, thought be, I thought it would be anyone but England. At no, that I, point see, in time. I see. I, I hated all that because I just thought it spoke to a sort of narrow-minded small country syndrome, mm-hmm. not having any confidence and and defining yourself in the misfortune of your your bigger neighbour. So on one hand, you know we 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 want to say yeah we're we're as good as them. Okay, yeah they're they're get more. Um, people than us, but you know we we are every bit as as able and um, as confident as England is. But on the other hand, we want to support anybody um, other than England because they're bigger than us. So I I just and then I also remember watching them against Germany, and my friends were supporting Germany just because or West Germany as we're then. Just because they were West Germany, they were playing England, and I didn't like West Germany because I thought they were a sure um, uh, they, they dived, they, they cheated, mm-hmm. and and this reached its apotheosis in the nineteen, I think it was a nineteen ninety World Cup with Klinsmann, yeah, which was one of these pals, one of the most boring as far as oh, ever played geez, in international oh, football. Yeah, in fact, one Argentina. of the most boring World Cups ever. Actually. It was no, it wasn't great. Well, I, well I, strangely enough, what? Yeah, well, Ireland. Ireland excited as playing boring football, mm. um, and but actually some of the best football was played by England in that tournament, and especially by Paul Gascoigne, mm. whom I whom I thought was a wonderful player and, and a flawed genius. Um, so that's why that's why I support England, <laughs> and I like England. I like uh, and I started watching cricket when I was about fourteen or fifteen. So oddly, I'm one of those lowland west west coast of Scotland. Football fans who actually likes cricket, and I like to see England doing well. Um, uh, but of course, since since I've been so well looked after, my family have been so well looked after by the Australian NHS. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say at that point there, you just lost all of the audiences. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you're really yeah. going to redeem yourself yeah. now, kid. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was pro union in the fact, in, in in to the extent well. The context of that is that when you, when when you if you're a socialist and this was one of the kind of this was one of the better arguments of the unionists during the independence referendum that if you're a socialist 
obviously you you are embracing ideas of universalism. So so poor and disadvantaged and alienated communities and inequality and unfairness in 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 Scotland uh, or people who are the victims of that in Scotland are no better, no different than than those who are the victims of it in the, the, the great cities of England, you know, like Birmingham, Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester, and likewise across Europe and in Latin America and Africa. So, you know, this the message of universal socialism and as all being in it against, uh, as all being in it together and against a common enemy, which is <coughs> concentrated wealth, um, uh, rampant uh, capitalism, uh, global inequality, the the influence of uh, the corporate elites, uh, and and of course recently the the influence of, of more shadowy forces uh, who have <coughs> begun to control. Um, the uh, the analytics of uh, social media in ways that um, that, could, that are quite sinister. So so all those you know there there's those forces that are arraigned against what we think are the the best interests of the majority of people in the globe would you would expect you you, you would say would would be against narrow nationalism. Mm. There, there are no borders to socialism. There are no borders to fighting inequality. Um, inequality, wherever you go, it might you know will have different. There will be different nuances, and and it'll have its own characteristics. But essentially, it's the same. Inequality in Scotland is the same as inequality in England, in Ireland, in in Germany, in France, in Italy, in Asia, in in Africa, in Latin America, in North America. Um, so, so that you could, you know, in in that sense, people like me and people who were uh, pro labour, or who came from families who had voted labour, all through uh, you know through several generations, that was the reason why we were, um, we we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be supporting any independence movement. Wasn't there also a distrust? Uh, from um, certain sections of that of that collective that you're talking about, a voting bloc, that Labour voting bloc, particularly those whose ancestors came across the Irish Sea, that there was a distrust towards Scottish nationalism. Yeah, that there was a protection from. Well, Scottish nationalism had um, there was a reputation that grew up around Scottish nationalism that there was a kind of nasty anti-Catholic streak to it, and. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure how much of that is true. What was true is that, unfortunately, the, the, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, had a couple of influential and senior figures in the 50s, 60s, 70s who were overtly anti-Catholic. And, and so they became kind of bogeymen of, um, in the Catholic consciousness. So there'll be thousands of... of Irish Catholic families in the west of Scotland and beyond who who knew about these people, and it was handed down. You know, mm. the SNP, no matter what they say, they've, they've got a wee bit of a problem with the with the Catholics. Um, but that all changed. Um, well, I mean, I, when I say that all changed, I think it's, it would probably be unfair to 
to say that that was, if it did exist, it was widespread in the SNP. But when Alex Salmond became leader, he began, he, he realised that um, if the SNP were ever going to get in, in power in Scotland, um, and, and, and they would have to get in power in Scotland if it was ever going to achieve its dream of an independent Scotland. It was going to have to um, find a way of, of providing bridges towards uh, people in the Labour Party like me, um, or, or people who supported Labour such as me, mm. and and also, you know, one of one of the power, one of the one of the strongholds, cultural. Uh, strongholds of the Labour Party, especially in the west of Scotland. I keep saying here the west of Scotland because it's the most heavily populated part of Scotland. Um, Which is Glasgow and... Yeah, Glasgow and Lanarkshire, yeah. North Lanarkshire, parts of North Ayrshire, <coughs> um, east, and, east and west of Bartonshire. Um, one of its main, one of the Labour Party's main strongholds was, our cultural strongholds was, was uh, working class Irish Catholics or the descendants of working class Irish Catholics who had who had come to Scotland fleeing the uh, the famine, the Great Famine in Ireland, um, 1840s, 50s, 60s onwards, um, and uh, and so Salmon, Alex Salmon, I wouldn't say he targeted Irish Catholics, but he he put a lot of work into saying. You, you know, you have nothing to fear from us, and and one of one of the ways in which he did this was that at a time when there was a lot of uh, <coughs> political <coughs> and media scrutiny on the existence of um, separate state-funded Catholic schools in Scotland, um, Alex Salmond repeatedly said over many years that. Uh, there would be no threat, there would be no question of uh, Catholic schools ceasing on his watch. Um, likewise, round about this time, a kind of unrepresentative liberal chattering class elite that existed in the Labour Party had begun to alienate working class Catholics who were both left wing and felt no great, um, in fact, their politics was informed by their faith, but on issues such as such as abortion um, and same-sex marriage, Catholic schools, you'd, you'd lots of Catholics who 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 were, were who were able to accommodate their their um, their socialism, uh, their desire for equality, as as well as their um, uh, their adherence to their faith. They accepted that, you know, there should be a separation in church, of church and state. They 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 weren't seeking to have the Catholic Church influence the um, the government of Scotland, but they just wanted free to be able to worship the way that people have worshipped in the Christian Catholic faith for the best part of a couple of thousand years. But but there was this kind of quite insidious atheist, atheistic, humanistic um, influence within the Labour Party that began to alienate uh, Catholics within the party. 
and saying, well, you can't, you can't be completely Catholic if you want to stay in our party. And, and Salmond em embraced them and said, you know, okay, we're not, the SNP isn't going to change its policy on any of these issues, but neither are we going to, um, we're not going to target you, we're not going to make you feel un uncomfortable. So that was one, that, that was, that was one part of um, the, the equation. The other part was simply that um, people, people like me began to become aware that in, in, in England and Westminster, the Conservative government was becoming um, much more right-wing. The, the Labour Party under Gordon Brown and before him under Tony Blair were becoming less able to um, represent their constituent members against this this deepening uh, this this, uh, this slide towards you know hard right um, hard right policies hard right economics and and they they had felt that the best way of doing this was to was to um, Ditch, ditch some of the, or, or to play down some of the unique characteristics of the Labour Party, which was a mistake in my view. And, and, the, and the SNP, the Scottish National Party in Scotland, since they had been in, in government in Scotland and they devolved Scotland, had brought in um, policies, and, and I'm not saying that they were successful in delivering these, you know, they still have issues delivering some of their core, core policies, but they, they sought to bring into Scottish society some of the principles, some of the values that had driven the Labour Party, the UK Labour Party, and which had been present at its founding. And so um, I, I remember around about 2013, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think there was a combination of things I think people were beginning to become aware of the extent to which many of our biggest companies and richest individuals were sinking their profits offshore. Um, the, the increasingly punitive measures being brought in against uh, poor people, unemployed people, the use of language by the, the, the elites um, of the UK government and those that supported it to exclude minorities, to, <clears throat> to target poor people, even things such as you know, benefit fraud and benefits. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking, the, you know, this, this is, this is a, again, an insidious way of, of settling an idea into the consciousness that these people are, are, are people who are on benefits are footless and ill-deserving. And you first had to realise they're not—they're not actually benefits. These are, this is an insurance system that the entire country is paid into, mm. and uh, most people who are on benefits have already paid into it. And if they haven't, then their parents have, and if their parents have it, then people like me have, who luckily haven't had to have, uh, ha haven't had to be in a position where we, we receive benefits. But I'm quite happy for the benefits that I might otherwise qualify for to go to those who really need them. Mm. And I'm not really going to ask too many questions about whether they deserve that extra 50 quid or 100 mm. quid or not. 
I might start asking it when, when the richest people um, start an answering honestly what they do with the, the profits that they've been allowed to make because of the, the very liberal um, uh, system of government that we have in the UK that allows them to make those profits, <clears throat> that looks after their children, that uh, keeps the streets safe. Um, but despite all that, they don't want to pay for the privileges of living in the UK, and they'd rather uh, sink them into um, uh, Latin American uh, tax havens mm. or Caribbean tax havens, just tax havens. So you come to that 2014 independence referendum, which was, which you know, was a, a a monumental moment in the history of Scotland. Um, you know, Australia has. Rarely do you get an opportunity for the citizenry to uh, ask, will be asked a question of identity and where you're going. Uh, consider your past, your present, your future. And we had a we had a referendum in the 1990s on whether we become a republic or not, and we mm. voted no. And for us Republicans, that is mm. was absolutely devastating. Um, and it makes you question, you know, well, what I, what am I a part of here? And I guess it was the same for you guys in Scotland. But you entered into that. Uh, referendum traditionally from the viewpoint of, of, of being from a Labour family or a Labour upbringing yeah, yeah. Um, and Labour were seen to be the party that were uh, driving the, 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 the no vote or the, the pro-union vote. Yeah, the, La the Labour Party made some fundamental and strategic errors during this because I th as I said before there was a valid, there was a very valid and, and compelling reason for a socialist to stay in the union and not separate from it um, because, because the need to address inequality is, is a universal one and, and shouldn't be, um, there, there shouldn't be any boundaries to it. But they, they went far, far further than that. They wrapped themselves in the Union Jack. They appeared on shared platforms with some of the most reactionary, uh, intolerant Tories and they sickened a lot of their, their own supporters. Um, it was reckoned, it was reckoned around about 30% of Labour voters in, at the time of the Scottish independence referendum um, voted yes. And, and a, quite a lot of them obviously <coughs> then went the full hog and joined the SNP. Um, because, not, not, not because, you know, there were people like me who were happy to vote for independence. I'm, I'm not a fan of the Scottish National Party. I would probably still vote Labour tomorrow. But a lot of others were so sickened by the behaviour, the conduct of um, uh, senior people in the Labour Party during the independence referendum that they, they, they joined the SNP. Um, a lot of others like me, once we had begun to consider that independent and independent Scotland was the way ahead, if we, if we wanted to create a society based on equality uh, and, and, and based on fairness, um, we, we, um, when we began to consider this for the first time, a lot of it just seemed to make sense. Like, you know, Scotland had been independent for roughly 80% of its entire existence. Mm. You know, it was 
it joined the, the Union, joined England in 1707. It wasn't exactly democratic because there wasn't any democracy then. Uh, there was a lot of um, the people who whose influence ran Scotland at the time saw a, a, a marketing, uh, saw a commercial opportunity that came with um, with uh, with being united with England. This, you know, this they, they didn't they didn't join the UK or, or with England because they they loved the concept of the United Kingdom and they loved England. This was. This was a, a means of um, getting on the coattails mm. of the the great English uh, mercantile uh, power, which then ran the world, ruled the seas. So, so you 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 think well. So we were independent for for most of our history, and um, Scotland's natural state was would would be to, to be independent. So, so why not? At this time, though, the, the SNP, I thought, made a strategic error because they, they produced a white paper on independence which was, which was far too sunny and optimistic. Now, leave aside the fact that Scots tend to get a bit suspicious of anything that's too sunny or optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> we are always looking, wherever there's a silver lining, we're looking for the cloud. Yeah. And, and they kind of, the, the SNP um, gilded the lily somewhat in seeing what an independent Scotland would look like economically. And I felt they could have been a bit more honest because if you're going to, if Scotland is to become independent, you know, there'll be a struggle to begin with. This is, you can't take this decision lightly. There are big questions to be asked about the future economy, um, uh, about any deficit um, that, that, we, that we might have um, if we leave the union, um, uncertainty over currency. I suppose some of those, some of those challenges or uncertainties um, become less so uh, because if if even a fraction of the uh, of what we're hearing of what we think could become a reality in a post Brexit UK then any difficulties that Scotland might encounter leaving the Union uh, get submerged by that. Mm. And, and the, other, the other thing, of course, was that one of the big offerings of the, the Unionist side during the independence referendum was that if you voted no to independence, you, you, you guaranteed our future in Europe. Well, now we, we saw how that's turned out. And, that, and that's the funny one, isn't it? Because, as you say, at the time, the European Union were, I think, trying to be a good uh, member or partner with the United Kingdom and mm. London and saying, OK, we're not going to stick our nose into the internal mm. affairs mm. of the United Kingdom on this particular debate. But in this post-Brexit uh, world that we live in, in which we now have that partner, the United Kingdom, or London, trying to extract itself from the European Union, you feel that if there was a second independence referendum, that the European Union or Brussels would be, would be a hell of a lot more clearer about what they would do in terms of an independent Scotland and their relationship yeah, with they, the European they would, Union. They would kind of, <clears throat> they wouldn't stand in Scotland's way if we wanted to to join the European Union. Well, some of the propaganda around that in 2014 suggested that. 
for instance, Spain would veto any application by an independent Scotland to join the EU because it would um, it would fuel the Catalan separatist movement in their own country. Mm. But that's since been debunked by senior uh, Spanish uh, officials, uh, including the Prime Minister. And I, I think also there's a, there would be a kind of gleefulness about uh, the European Union embracing Scotland and independent Scotland, part of which would be to get it right up England. Yeah, it's massive shit and right there. <laughs> but in saying that, the SNP again have to watch how they go here. You know, they can't they can't just say if if Scotland becomes independent, we are going to we're going to join Europe because quite a lot of um, quite a lot of independent supporters have got deep suspicions of the European Union as well. Okay. And, and, and because of the, the nature and the divisiveness of the entire debate um, over like the Irish backstop and because of the kind of the extreme rhetoric of the likes of Nigel Farage and the Tory right, what's been forgotten is that there are quite a lot of problems with the European Union for people on the left. Um, the, the corporate interests, the, 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 the economic bullying of, of the likes of uh, Greece um, and, and Spain and Italy. Um, and and there, is, there, is a, there is a good case for, being, for not being part of the European Union. Unfortunately, the case that was made in, mainly in England was based on immigration. Mm. And, and you also got the impression quite a lot of big businesses wanted out of the, Un the European Union because the shackles would then come off. You know, they don't have to join up to any kind of ideas about workers or employment rights. I did read a phrase this morning in the papers that referred to uh, the, 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 the hopes and dreams of a Boris Johnson-led um, exit from the European Union would create a Singapore on the Thames so less regulatory bodies overseeing the way that they conduct business. Um, let's talk about Boris Johnson. He's just become your new Prime Minister. Um, you wrote a couple of weeks ago that um, one should not underestimate the mm. canny ability of this bloke. Talk mm. us mm. through your thoughts on Boris Johnson and the implications it will have for both the way that they extract themselves from Europe and also Scotland. First of all, the... You have, you have to understand that Boris Johnson could become one of the shortest-lived uh, prime ministers in the, in the history of the UK. Um, because if, if, uh, if Westminster... If he, he, he doesn't appear to be making any, any great effort to reach uh, an agreement with the European Union in the, in the time that is left. But we have to... He's, he's promised to be out by October the 31st with no deal if necessary and to hang with the with the consequences but he doesn't appear, <laughs> he doesn't he, he says he wants to avoid that and that that's a last resort but you get the impression that that's the first mm. resort and what he wants to avoid is any further negotiations mm. and and there's a significant number of um, people in his own party allied to the uh, the opposition parties Labour and the SNP and the Liberal Democrats, who would who would probably, well, they they would definitely um, 
obliterate a no-deal Brexit. But Johnson has hinted that we will, well, he'll either prorogue Parliament, i.e., you know, just ride roughshod over it, and somehow go to the people who voted for it and make it a people versus politicians, or go for a people versus politicians general election. So we could call a snap general election, during which time we slide out of the EU because Parliament has collapsed, you know, for four, five, six weeks while a general election is called. Um, it would be a massive gamble for him. He would hope that by portraying it as um, these superannuated uh, middle-class, out-of-touch politicians versus the people, that he would he would win the general election. And that would then be an endorsement for no deal Brexit. And even those in Parliament who'd voted against it, they would they would have to stand aside morally. You know, if you fight a general election and that's your, your principal um, policy and the people vote for that, then well you can't you can't get away from that. But a lot more people I think have become more informed about some of the lies, uh, the inaccuracies that were part of the the, uh, the Leave, the Leave uh, Europe uh, vote side in, in 2016. Uh, some of the sums that were plucked out of midair, the influence of um, the, the influence of shadowy analytic. Uh, companies associated with Facebook, or rather, who had who had managed to get a lot of information about people and the names of people and their Facebook addresses to target them with highly inaccurate data aimed at their prejudices mm. based on their um, behaviour on Facebook. And you're talking about Cambridge Analytica in, yeah, in particular. Yeah. And so, so it would be a massive gamble by, by Boris Johnson, but, but then that's, that's, been his, that's been his modus operandi. And it's, it's too easy. The thing that makes me queasy is that there are too many kind of left-wing um, stroke nationalist uh, people in Scotland who, who dismiss him as a, as a hard-right buffoon mm. um, an, an, an idiot, a savant, uh, you know, racist, homophobe, and that, that that's not helpful. In fact, it plays into those who back him. You know, if they underestimate him, they think that's all he is. Um, that's that's how you know that's how people like him win. Mm. He surrounded himself with um, a formidable team of strategists. Um, and they're not there. They're not there simply to get Brexit over the line. They will be deployed if there's a, a, a another campaign for an independent Scotland. Um, and uh, you, if you think where Boris Johnson was ten, well, God, even less, even less than two years ago when he was Foreign Secretary, he, he resigned from that post amidst allegations and lots of claims since that he was the worst foreign secretary ever, that he was 
never on top of his brief, that he didn't do any homework, um, that he unwittingly insulted God knows how many countries. Um, so less than two years later, he's the, he's the Prime Minister of the UK. Well, one, he's an extremely effective speaker. And he's, he's loved by ordinary conservatives. And these ordinary conservatives, you know, despite what we in the left say, they're not, they're not racist or homophobic. Mm. They're simply traditional traditionalists who don't like the idea of change. And they're not necessarily unkind people. They, they, just, they just want what is best for them and their family. And they, they you know, they're not really, don't really give a care much for many people outside of that. And they, they, they just simply expect the state to kind of look up, look after the poor people, the people who sleep in the pavements. Mm. It's somebody else's problem. It's not, it's not a great way to base your political beliefs on, but they're not, they're not evil or wicked. And I suspect Johnson um, comes from that sort of background, but he has, he's deployed some darker forces in order to get where he is. And, and, and the fact that he, you, you, none of it will not, we will not be able to know what post-Brexit Britain is, is going to look like. It's almost impossible to predict. On one hand, you get people saying that the food supply chain will be interrupted because um, you know the vast majority of our food arrives and arrives in the south of England. It arrives fresh and it's distributed over 24 hours. And if that food chain is interrupted for two or three days, you know we could have food shortages. But then, on the other hand, you think, what really? You know, it's Britain with its great agriculture and fishing <laughs> background is it really incapable of feeding itself? Um, uh, you know, if, if we were in those circumstances. Um, but, but I think what has worried a lot of people is the, the kind of the, the cheerful um, ignoring, if you like, of, of any people's concerns. I mean, there are, there are genuine concerns about um, supply chains coming from Europe, about medicines that are coming from Europe. Um, and, and also just attitudes towards immigrants because if the wheels do come off and it becomes apparent within a couple of years or earlier than that that we're encountering real difficulties out of Europe that businesses are closing and that unemployment goes up the rhetoric of Johnson and his allies already is, is to blame Europe so somehow when they want us they want their supporters to believe that although it was Britain that decided to come out of Europe and, it, and that Europe was begging it not to do it, somehow it's Europe's fault that mm. we're out. And it's in that atmosphere, and there's been a, you know, in England there's been a, an increase in racist attacks. In that atmosphere where, where things are looking difficult and the governing classes begin to blame the Europeans that's when, that's when, you know, that's when immigrants and European nationals begin to look a bit um, vulnerable. 
It's that kind of nastiness that leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Uh, it's interesting to note, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about um, the opposition spokesperson John, uh, for Labour in Westminster, John MacDonald, yeah. making those remarks which uh, about um, uh, the, the UK Labour's view on um, Scotland pursuing a second uh, independence referendum, breaking with UK Labour policy and saying that we wouldn't stand in mm. the way of um, Scotland seeking to have a new... Um, uh, another vote. At the same time, uh, you also... And I, and I wonder if this is a play for that Labor constituency that they lost at the last independence yep. referendum because I also noted that during the week, the Labor uh, Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, happens to just turn up in Romania <laughs> and it, it turns up at a Celtic match yeah. against for a European yeah. uh, Champions League qualifier. Yeah. Either this is amazing coincidence that all of a sudden he just happens to be in Romania and gets photographed <laughs> with Celtic supporters and is at the game, whilst his opposition spokesperson on the matter is also saying that we wouldn't stand in the way of, a, of an independence uh, referendum vote. I'm starting to think that there's a play here for well, that. Well, you're, uh, you're, both we've both got a journalistic background that I should believe in that because, because journalists are supposed to kind of examine conspiracy theories and and we, we 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 do want to accept things at face value on this. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that one. And I, I simply don't think Jeremy Corbyn's got it in him to have to have um, engineered that. Uh, the people, the people around him, uh, you know, his strategists. You know, although they're very deeply of the left and and hard bitten socialists, they're all they're also quite. Um, they're also quite gentrified in their own way, you know. Most a lot of them also went to Oxford. They all, they went to the same training schools as the English elites. Yeah, <laughs> the rest of the English elite. They wouldn't know about the European Champions League qualifiers. <laughs> maybe, maybe. They, you know, they, they, these people support Arsenal and Chelsea and Man City, the kind of like boutique English clubs uh-huh. um, who don't know what a qualifier is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Well, it's, I but, wanted... but but that's not to say that I won't use that in a column. <laughs> and by all means, go for it. Go for it. Um, I, I want to uh, turn our attention to uh, sort of the cultural side of Scotland, which we've touched on a little bit, um, and uh, think back to the, the, the Scottish Enlightenment. Well, Scotland of a long, long time ago, the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, Glasgow being the second city of the empire, um, this sort of industrious Scot who invented penicillin, the telephone, television um, and fast forward to Dolly the Sheep and the ATM and mm-hmm. pin numbers and, and Iron Brew and everything else that comes with it. And now you look at modern Scotland in sort of, you know, 2019 where, like, in a city like Glasgow, there's chronic economic problems, uh, you know, health inequalities across communities, drug and alcohol addiction, uh, you know, pr- the privatisation of assets has had a massive impact, and you've written about that yourself, um, across uh, sort of essential service delivery, um, sectarianism, the national football men's football team hasn't made a major championship since 1998. What would the fathers of the Enlightenment look at a modern Scotland now and make an assessment of how Scotland is going? Because, and on the backdrop of that, is it now the right time to become an independent country? When we talk about using, you know, the um, the union of economic power, be it mm-hmm. either the European Union or a union with England, to you know try and uh, produce an economy that can actually look after everyone involved in that. 
A lot, of, a lot of those issues and a lot of the failures in those areas come from sheer human incompetence. Um, and, and yeah, yeah the, the, the so-called fathers of the Scottish Enlightenment, if indeed, indeed the river really was a Scottish Enlightenment, because Scots like to... Um, Talk that up. Yeah, we like to say that we, we kind of punch above our weight. But there's, look, there's lots of other small countries with five million or less who do great things, and we never hear about them because we're not them. Mm, yeah. <laughs> They're not us. But, but yeah, yeah, we're, we're proud of, um, for, for the size of nation we are, of course we're proud of uh, a lot of the things which you've just mentioned. Less so the football team. The football team's never been great, to be honest, um, for all sorts of reasons. We, we, we could have been great once, but incompetence at an official level, nepotism, Freemasonry, <laughs> um, mitigated against Scotland yeah. being good when it could have been, and a lot of you know a lot of the incompetence um, and more sinister forces are still at the top of the Scottish Football Association, but um, which we'll dive into later. Yeah, but the um, yeah this is the right time for Scotland. I think for Scotland to be independent. But that's not to say that all the problems are going to be solved because, you know, we, Scotland has, we've had devolved from the UK for 20 years now. And, you know, we're, we're in, as part of the devolved arrangements, we are in charge of our own education and health system and we've still got, still got major problems right. in those two areas. And the inequalities... <clears throat> that you see in the biggest cities, especially Glasgow, the, the areas that are worst affected are the same areas that were affected 100, 150 years ago. So, so we know the areas. We know why. Uh, you know, we see the, the we see the manifestations of this poverty and deprivation and inequality, and we have done for 150 years, and we've had. We've had Labour governments, we've now got an SNP administration for, for a certain amount of time. Glasgow City Council, you know, had a Tory administration, or a Tory-ish administration. Um, Scotland voted, you know, the only time that Scotland had that more than 50% of the electorate voted for one party was in, was it 1959, and it was the Conservatives they voted for. So every administration of every colour and stripe has has been um, in charge of Scotland or, or Scottish affairs for a hundred odd years and it's the same people and the same parts of the same cities which are affected. So um, I, you, know, you, you can't say that independence suddenly we're all going to be in a land of milk and honey mm. and you know the sick are going to pick up their you know walk up from their sick beds and it's just not going to be like that and and our, the reason why we're we still have these issues is because you know we do have some of the same we're still afflicted in certain areas by those things which afflict Westminster England we we reward incompetence uh, we don't scrutinize the performance of um, uh, 
executives in health and education. Uh, we still have uh, the we still have a disproportionate influence of uh, private school, a private school elite. We still have a police force which is corrupt, incompetent, um, thick, uh, nasty, um, probably sectarian. In parts, we you know we we have um, we have health authorities overseen by people who, who, who shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a hospital. So these things will all still have to be addressed in an independent Scotland. But there's an opportunity, independence gives the government, and it, it might not necessarily be the SNP, an opportunity to, to start again and to, to unstitch some of these patterns of inequality and disproportionate influence. Uh, by unelected groups in society. Uh, yeah, to look at the, the pattern of land ownership because you, know, you, you said at the top of the programme you know, how people in Australia and beyond would probably view Scotland as a, a quite a left-wing country, deeply affected by socialism or fueled by socialism, but yet less than... 500 people or families own um, uh, more than half the landmass of Scotland. You know, we, there are st we still have a massive overhang from when Europe was run by the feudal system. And no, and, and it's been mainly left-wing governments that we've had in the last 100 odd, odd years, but, but we still have vast, vast areas of Scotland owned by absentee multimillionaires um, who, who keep the, these lands, uh, you know, they make them deliberately uninhabitable so that they can be cleared for shooting parties from their rich friends mm. from all over the world. And golf courses. Yeah, well, golf courses. I mean, God, <laughs> how many golf courses does Scotland have? Mm. Who benefits from them? Um, so yeah, we we you know there's 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 still massive inequality and you know low level corruption, almost civic corruption, acceptable, non criminal corruption if there is such a thing. Um, lots of people still uh, drinking at the trough, protecting their own interests, being human. Um, and, and Scotland, an independent Scotland, would have an opportunity. That's all it is. There's no guarantees that we'd be any different. But there, there would be an opportunity to, to kind of wipe the slate clean and start building a society based on more enlightened and progressive and equal uh, values, if you like. And it's not, and, and those are universal values. It's not one of the things I don't like about. Um, the independence movement or the yes movement is not, not so much, I don't like it about the movement, but there is a tendency by a, quite a lot of Scots in these movements to, to infer, to imply that 
Scottish values are, are somehow better, that uh, there's a kind of Scottish exceptionalism, that we are, that, that we are fueled by a kind of higher um, values, that we exist in a higher plane, mm. that we answer to a higher God or a higher set of values. All nonsense, of mm. course. We're no better, no worse than the rest of the UK, the rest of the world. There are as many good people and are people that want to be good in Scotland as there are in, proportionally in most other countries. Most people, you know, want to be kind. Most people want to do the right thing in Scotland. It's no better than that. But at a point, this point in its history, there's 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 a recognition that um, not many of those people are running the government of the UK. That the balance has been tipped in favour of those who want to maintain their uh, power blocks to influence society for the few, very few, and not the many, and to protect the interests of um, uh, global um, uh, corporate corporatism. Scotland has an, an opportunity to, to do something different. We're going to take a short break here. Because what we're going to do after the break is we're going to talk about... Uh, I want to talk to you about sectarianism and then we're going to segue into our dual love of the Celtic Football Club. Uh, but for those uh, listening who have no interest in football whatsoever, um, I bid you adieu. Uh, thank you very much for listening to today's episode. For those of you who are going to remain with us, which mostly is my family uh, and, uh, and uh, the people on our um, WhatsApp chat group back in Scotland, um, we'll, uh, talk to, we'll pick it up in, uh, in just a moment. Thank you.